Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Uh, yeah, so uh, thank you so much to uh, you guys as a church for supporting not just me, but other church plants and other church planners. I've always said if you're a church planner, you don't come through the guys and the leadership at K2 the Church, you're crazy. Uh, and so it's just been an honor to partner with them. And, and um, I, we brought the idea to them a, a while back because uh, the idea for us isn't just that we move into a building, uh, but that we use that space kind of all throughout the week and able to help um, the community connect to Jesus, but then also how do we be a church that influences our community? Uh, and so um, he mentioned a building. Uh, we've met in four places in five years as a church. Uh, yeah, that's hard. And um, we're actually even meeting in the evenings right now because of some of those moves, uh, which is even harder. And so we found this spot. We found somebody willing to lease to us. And so we're leasing this building in South Jordan. It sits right on Redwood Road. But what we're also doing is we're starting a Christian preschool. Uh, and so we're starting a kind of a Christian preschool and a daycare. And it's going to be called Rooted Academy. And uh, my wife and Brooklyn Foster and actually the director of, is Tiffany Suffin and her and her family come here to K2. And we've also got some other uh, folks that come to K2 that are, that are already hired and going to be employees at Rooted Academy. And uh, so we're asking that if you guys uh, know of someone uh, or maybe yourselves that would be interested in, in checking it out, we've actually got a, a table out there with some brochures. And, um, and, but basically what we're doing is we're launching, hopefully, uh, in April, hopefully the building will be done and, and all the inspectors will quit bugging us. Uh, if you're an inspector, God bless you. Um, uh, but um, it, it's, been a, it's been an interesting journey. And, uh, and thank you so much to like the youth and the students. And then the, if you're involved in Local 316, thank you. Um, just been amazing uh, help and saved us a lot of money, which was necessary. So um, and again, if you have any questions, you can go out there. And basically, this is a preschool that it's going to be the best preschool around, all right? This isn't like kind of supplemented by the church, and hopefully, you know, we get a few kids. This is like, this is the life breath of what we are doing as a church and as a community, is reaching into our community and helping and teaching kids about the love of God, but then also preparing them to be awesome people in the community and, and really setting them up for success whenever they do get to whatever school they're going to. So if you know of anybody that needs it, uh, the brochures are out there. You can ask the ladies. They'll be out there um, giving you more information. And that's all I have to say. I'm kidding. Uh, so we are talking about identity. And a couple weeks ago, I was, Dave was actually checking out the building and, and seeing everything. Me and Dave had lunch. And I just told him, I was like, man, like, it just seems like the last maybe year or so that I've been preparing messages and been speaking and and then even just in kind of my own time with God, I really just feel like God has been speaking to me about like everything just it seems to revolve around identity. And I was like, it's amazing. And I'm telling him the story and telling some stuff. And I had no idea that you guys were about to start a series on identity. And so he called me a couple weeks ago and said, hey, I'm going to be out of town. Uh, why don't you come and talk on identity? And I was like, awesome. So, uh, so I'm excited to be here. This is something that I feel like God has really had me on personally for a while. Um, and, and I'm just convinced, man, um, that, you know, we sang this song and it's just saying, hey, my heart is yours. Like basically everything I am, my heart is yours, right? And you're not going to relent until everyone is saying, my heart is yours. You're just going to chase after us until we just say, my heart is yours. And, um, you know, as I'm singing this song, the one thing that I don't know about you, but that came to me was, man, 
a bunch of people singing that song and, and I, I actually believe this, that my heart is yours, I'm surrendered, let's do this, God, let's go change the world. How many of you guys just had that thought as you're singing this song? Like, absolutely, man. And the, the crazy thing is, if every single person in this room, and you guys have another service, so if everybody in this room, and then if everybody that was at the first service, if this group of people said, that's it, man, everything I have is yours, I'm all in and, and I'm, I surrender. If everybody did that and lived that what we're talking about here in this whole identity series, this church could literally change the Salt Lake Valley for the kingdom of God. Seriously, 11 guys, uneducated, unlearned it says, 11 guys who were just like, man, we're, we're, had this encounter with Jesus and literally changed the world and change the way people think about God. And so there's no doubt in my mind, man, if one church could grab it and one church can do it, you could see drastic change in the kingdom. Every culture has a way of telling us about our identity. Every culture has a way of saying it. And one of the things I think that happens in Western cultures and especially in ours, uh, you meet someone, hi, my name is Tony. And typically what's the next question people ask? What do you do? Right? And so we get kind of wrapped up in this identity as, as what we do at, for a living, if you will. That's, we all know what that means, right? And, and, and you know, so it's kind of sort of polite, but it also, doesn't it kind of put us into a category? Like, what do you do? Oh, okay. Oh, <laughs> uh-huh. Oh, you're a building inspector. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you. Right? I mean, you just put it in these categories. And, and so that's kind of what our culture does. And, and this whole conversation about identity, um, it, you know, our whole lives, I think, we're, we're reaching to that, but especially once we become a teenager and we get a mind of our own. I mean, unless you have an eight-year-old like me, and she's had a mind of her own since she was, like, born. Uh, but, but we kind of get, we, we start thinking, do I believe all this stuff that everybody's telling me I should believe? Is, is the way my family does things the way I want to do things? Uh, and so we kind of start that as a teenager, don't we? And then we just move on to really kind of struggling and figuring out our identity and who we are. And, and most of the time, it continues. And, and we, we continue to kind of find our identity in different things. So I just wanted to ask a few questions to really kind of get your mind thinking about this concept of identity and, and what it is that you personally kind of find your identity. And you might identify with a couple of these. But, but more than likely, one of these is going to be something like, okay, yeah, that's, that's kind of where I'm at. And so here's a, a question for a couple questions. You guys ready? It's not a test. You're right. All right, uh, is your identity based on what others think about you? And if it is, what happens when that changes? Because how many of you know, people think you're awesome now, they might not later, all right? Is your identity based on what you do? And if it is, what happens if you stop doing that? Is your identity based on who you surround yourself with, your relationships, who you date, your friends? And if so, what happens when that changes? Is it based on what you've accomplished? And if so, what happens when you're no longer able to accomplish it? Is it based on your ability to earn money or to gain wealth? To buy stuff. And if it is, what happens when that changes? Is it based on your family, your wife, or your kids, your ability to love and provide for them? 
And if it is, what happens if that changes? I, I can relate to, to that question. Um, I was raised by my father, and uh, he was divorced from my mother when I was very young. And um, my dad had, and, and his previous wife had three children. My dad adopted two other kids from my, my, my mom's first marriage. And, and so every, all my brothers and sisters are about 10 years older than me or older. And so my dad maybe didn't do the best job he could have done with my brothers and sisters in his relationship with them. So when I came along, I benefited from his mistakes, and so he spoiled me a little bit. Anybody have a spoiled little brother or sister? I was that guy, all right? And, um, and because of that, my dad did a lot of things right, and a lot of the wrong things that he did, he didn't do, right? He learned from his mistakes, and so I benefited from it. So my dad and I had a great relationship. And uh, again, most of the, for a long, a long period of time, it was just me and my dad because my brothers and sisters lived with, with their moms. And when I was 16, my dad died. And, I, I, and he died very, very quickly. They said, hey, he has cancer. This is back when you know, cancer you know, it, it reared its ugly head and it, it, it just happened a lot faster. But they basically told, told us in June that he had cancer and uh, he, was, he was gone three months later. And so as a young man with that relationship, that was a primary relationship for me. And my dad was like everything for me. I wanted to make my dad proud. I, I, you know, yeah, I wanted to get good grades, but I, wa- I wanted to, to hear him say, good job, boy. I did good in sports because I wanted to hear my dad say, I love you and you're awesome. And so my identity as a young man was wrapped up in my father and in my father's approval. And when, I, when he was gone at 16 years old, my life went spiraling out of control. And it went spiraling out of control, not because there wasn't anybody else around me to love me. It went spiraling out of control because my identity was pretty much fixed on my dad and his love and his approval. And when I didn't have that, I just didn't know what to do. And so I spent the next eight years of my life trying to figure out my identity and trying to struggle and live my life in a way that was contrary to the way I knew my dad had raised me but I was just couldn't figure it out. And until I met Jesus and began that relationship with God, my life was a struggle for eight years. And uh, so I can relate what it looks like to have the, your identity fixated on these things. And, and so my question is what happens when those things change? So I wanna jump in with a couple of scriptures here and talk about this, this second piece of this identity series. Last week, if you were here, uh, if you weren't, you go and listen to the message. If you were here, Dave talked about this understanding that our identity it needs to start with the fact that we have a creator and, and that God has created you for a purpose. He's created you for some specific things. And, and to understand that, you need to know your creator. And kind of the way I've always put it is if you invent something and you are the one who created it from the ground up, is there anybody else on the planet who knows that thing better than you? Nope. And if, if you are the one that's kind of built it from the ground up when it comes to installing or putting that thing in and implementing it, most people would be like, what does that thing do? But the creator's like, watch up. And so Dave talked about this idea of understanding we have a, a creator. 
And, and so now we're gonna kind of do this next step of what it means, not only that we are created and that we are a creation, but that we are, what that means for us in our relationship with God. Uh, John 1:12 says this, but to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. He gave the right to become children of God. So what we kind of need to do is dismantle this, you know, kind of like urban legend, this myth that says we're all children of God. No, see, the, what Jesus did, the stuff that we sang about and what Jesus did, his death, his resurrection, and, and him bringing us into relationship gives us the right then to become children of God. And it's belief and it's accepting, it's bringing him in, it's, it's that whole process that then gives us the right to become children of God. We receive and we believe. And Dave said it last week, this should be one of the most amazing truths as followers of Jesus, that what Jesus did brings us into the family, if you will, and it makes us a child of God. And this should be a truth that blows us away. And it literally should be a truth that transforms the way we think, the way we act, who we are, who we become. It literally should be the thing that changes us. And one of the things that he talked about is, unfortunately, we struggle with this whole concept of identity. And we struggle what that even means. Like when I say you're a child of God, my guess is some of you struggle with what that means. Like I have in the past and maybe like I did last week, you know. And so we're going to talk about what it means to be a child of God today. So uh, we got Romans 8. If you want to open up there. How many of you guys bring actual Bibles? A couple of you. All right. Romans 8. We don't have to, because you can either watch the screen or look it up on this, right? Siri, open up to Romans 8 or whatever. I noticed, I noticed you guys are a, an Apple church. Your how to turn off your cell phone is an example of an iPhone. Did you notice that? Maybe I'm the only one that noticed it because I'm an Apple. I'm a, a Mac evangelist, as my friend says. So Romans chapter 8, and it says this. It says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's Spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba Father. For his Spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. I want to break that down a little bit. And it says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. And so if you are a follower of Jesus, you have surrendered your life to Jesus at some point or other, said, that's, that's the life I want to live. I don't necessarily know what it looks like. I don't know how to do it, but that's what I want. I want Jesus in my life. If that's what you said, then the Bible says he has given you his spirit, the Holy Spirit. Jesus tells his disciples, I've got to go so that I, when I go, I can send you the Holy Spirit. And so if you are a child of God, then it says you have the Spirit of God and you are led by the Spirit of God as children of God. And then he says this, so you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you receive God's Spirit. Now, real quick, because it's going to set up a little bit that I'm going to talk about is if you believe in the Spirit of God, you believe in angels, you believe in Jesus, you believe in God, then you have to believe Absolutely, you have no luxury to not believe that there is an, an, an opposite force of an, an opposite spirit, an evil spirit, this other side of the realm of the spirit that seeks, as the Bible says, to steal, kill, and destroy, to harm you. 
You have to believe that. And this is basically saying, look, you, you did not receive this spirit of fear, this thing that is gonna cause you, if you will, to live a life of fear. You've actually received the spirit of God. And it says this, and you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now, this concept, this biblical concept of adoption is really no different than the concept that we find in our culture today. So my wife and I, we do foster care. And we have two awesome foster kids, and they've been with us for uh, almost a year now, and, um, and they are awesome and great, but they aren't mine. Does that make sense? And, and since the, the kind of state has said, hey, watch over them, since they're not mine, I have two biological children, I can't quite treat them exactly like mine in some ways because I don't know what you believe, but... We moved here from the south, and so we believe in a little bit of Holy Spirit spanking, okay? Yeah! Apparently, I'm a spanking evangelist, too. No, I'm kidding. And there have been times where I'm like, I, I'm going, I, I need to discipline them, right? And so I'm like, give me your phone or whatever that thing is. Give it to me because, man, boy, if you were mine, I would, you know. But, but because there is no adoption yet, they are not ours and not free, if you will, to do whatever I want to do. I have to follow some other rules, don't I? But if the glorious time comes when we're able to adopt these two beautiful kids who are actually sitting over here on the front row, <laughs> maybe, just maybe, No more phone taken away. We'll see which one works better. No. But, but what, the, what the scripture says is that you didn't receive the spirit of God. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. So there's something that happens legally when they become my own children. But there's something that happens in the spirit when you receive and you are receive God's spirit and you become his own child, you have been given a right and it happens in that moment and when it happens, you are his. And see, when we get a chance to adopt these two beautiful kids, I've got two other biological kids, pray for me. And, and so those four kids then have complete different rights because the court says so and, and since I... They are mine, they have different rights. So what this says, this goes into that rights, it says, and since we are his children, we are his heirs. See, God has a lot of stuff, God has everything, everything he has, he has, but as his children, everything he has is ours. And see, so the same thing happens to my foster kids. When my two biological kids, if I died, they have a right to whatever I have. But now the four of them, if, if I get to adopt them, the four of them get to split the hundred bucks I'm going to leave them. <laughs> right? But they have just as much legal right to my estate because they are not just my children, they are my heirs. Because something happens 
when they are not just foster and they are adopted, something happens. And I don't have the luxury anymore to say, well, these two kids get this because they're my biological, and these two get that because they're not. No, no, no. I don't have that luxury anymore. My $100 gets split, like it or not, because they are not just my children, but they are heirs to everything I have. Okay, I can stop right there, but I'm not going to. Here, so the other thing he says is now they call him Abba Father. Now, this Abba Father, it, 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 it basically means daddy, right? So there's a difference when you're like, oh, holy God, heavenly Father, we thank you so much for thy food and this bounty that you laid before me, and thy, we thank you thee. That is different, isn't it, than just going, daddy, you're my daddy, and since you're my daddy, I talk to you. Don't you talk to your daddy differently? Daddy, like you're my daddy. And when you're my daddy, I just ask for stuff. Maybe even too much stuff. But it's different when we approach him as daddy, isn't it? Opposed to, there's a difference when you are his child and he is your daddy. There's a difference. Now, I want to go through a couple of things of what it means to be a dad, and then we'll talk about, address this stuff. Here's a couple of things. The first, a daddy protects his children at all times. Right, dads? Like, like if, if, I got, if I got anger problems, I got anger problems. But you, you want to get the worst of me? Mess with one of my kids. Do you know what I'm saying? Okay? And, and so a daddy protects his kids, doesn't he? A, a daddy provides for his kids, literally even at the own expense, right? Uh, when you have that true daddy, like, you know, you just wear the same pair of shoes until they get holes in them. Do you know what I'm saying? To make sure your kids have shoes. You wear the same clothes. You do whatever. You buy a few things here and there, but you go without if you have to to make sure your kids are provided for. That's what a daddy does. A daddy cares for his kids, especially in the most of vulnerable times. A daddy loves. The number one thing a daddy can do for his children is love them with an unconditional love. If I've learned anything in this foster care journey, it's that my love is often conditional. But a daddy loves unconditionally and does whatever it takes to love unconditionally. And there's lots of things daddies do. Daddies also make sure their, their kids feel safe. You tuck them in at night. You make sure that they don't have to go somewhere in the dark if they don't want to go down to the basement because woo, you make sure you go down there with them, right? And then when they become 14 and unafraid of the dark, you go down the basement and give me that stuff, right? Now, many of us, when I talked about that, many of us have kind of a skewed view of what it means to be a daddy. Maybe, just maybe, you've actually been taught wrong about God and what, dad, what a daddy is. And so therefore, your view of God as a father is skewed because you've been taught in different religious systems that says the opposite of what I'm saying and what the Bible actually teaches. Some of you have had really difficult experiences in real life. And maybe your dad wasn't these things for you. And because of that, we have this skewed view of God as a daddy and what it means to have God as our daddy. 
There's lots of things that are gonna compete to this whole conversation about understanding what a dad is. I love what Louis Giglio says about that. He says this, he says, God is not the reflection of your earthly father. He is the perfection of your earthly father. That, that if, if, if what you do is make continuous parallels to how your dad is, to how God is, and, and have a difficult time understanding how perfect God is, I love this quote, he is not the reflection of your earthly father, he is the perfection of your earthly father. And some of you dads right now can say, thank God for that, right? Thank God that I am not always the reflection of who God is. Thank God that he is the perfect reflection and Jesus is the perfect reflection of the Father. And then I can point my kids to Jesus rather than always pointing to me. Because I'm the one going to my kids sometimes being like, man, I'm sorry I did that. Right? So whatever the reason is, I believe that even in this Romans verse where Paul says that you haven't received the spirit that makes you fearful slaves, I believe that, that our, our con one of the conversations about identity has to be in our false identities of who God is and who you are. And one of those false identities, I believe that the enemy, the enemy of our soul, desires for you and I to have a false identity of who God is. And the reason why he wants you to have a false identity of who he is and a false understanding of who the Father is is because he's got a screwed up one, right? He wants to make sure that his wrong view of who God is gets put on to you. Now, we have this example in scripture. Think about it. When the very first time in Genesis chapter three that, the, that Satan, the enemy, shows up, he comes to tempt Eve, right? And he says to Eve, did God really say you shouldn't do that? And then she's like, well, he did, and this is what he said. And then he says this. Yeah, because see, the problem is God's worried that if you do that, you'll actually have the power and authority you'll actually have and be able to see good from evil and determine it and see God's holding that on you. Isn't that what he tells her? His twisted view of God holding out on him, he puts on top of Eve and simultaneously Adam and simultaneously every single person in this room is affected by that lie. Every single person in this room is affected by that lie in your life that God is holding out on you because it's the original lie. And it's the lie because it's the lie that the enemy has believed himself that he is being held out on. And he wants that twisted view to be yours. Now, why does the enemy care? Why does he even give a rip of what you think and what your re reality is? Because he understands if you actually knew who you were in Jesus, his days are numbered. He, the kingdom of darkness has no match in the kingdom of God, period. And so he knows, literally, that if you actually figured it out, he has no control over you, he has no control over other people. The way the Bible kind of words it is that those that are actually children of God, it says that they no longer sin and it says because the enemy has no power over them. The power he has, we give him because we believe in the lie and we believe that maybe God's holding out on us So we believe in this other twisted view of who God is. But what he knows is that, boy, you guys would change the world if you could figure this out. The other thing, the other reason why he's like that is when Jesus, after his de life, death, and resurrection, as the resurrected king, and as he's sending out the disciples in Matthew 28, and as he's sending them out to go change the world, he says this, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then what does he do? 
He says, now you go out and change the world with that power and that authority. What was the enemy looking for when he came to God? Power and authority. See, you have what the enemy wants. You have the power and the authority of the, of the Father because everything that's his is yours. And that power and authority literally changes communities, changes cities. And it's the reason why you and I are sitting here worshiping and singing songs to a great God and singing songs like you're a good, good father. You did it because 11 guys believed what Jesus said and went and changed the world. But they did it not on their own. They did it through his power and his authority. And that's what the enemy wanted all along. All right, real quick, I want to read this. Uh, I want to go through this story. If you're reading in your Bible, open up to Luke chapter 15. If not, I'm just going to tell you the story. I was praying about this, asking God, man, where, where, where do we want to go with this? And this story, never seen it this way at all. And I believe God brought this story to my mind, and I thought, wow, we've got we've to talk about this. Luke chapter 15, it's the story of the prodigal son. And I'm going to read it real quick. It says this. It says, a man had two sons, and the younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. And about that time, his money ran out. A great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. And the young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, and no one gave him anything. And when he finally came to his senses... He said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Please take me as a hired servant. Now what we have here is the first son that doesn't actually understand his identity, does he? He's trying to get out from under the thumb of his father, whatever's going on, and he wants to leave early. He wants to go and he wants to bail because he actually doesn't understand his role as a son in the house of his father. And then as he's, as, as he's squandered everything and he's sitting there hanging out with the pigs, as that's happening, he, he begins to think of this speech he's going to tell his dad. He said, he's like, I'm just going to tell my dad, look, man, I'm no longer to be worthy to call your son. So what I, what I need you to do is just hire me as one of your servants. Here's a man with a lost identity. And here's a man who doesn't understand what it means to be a child of the king. And in God's house, he doesn't understand it. So, he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father came, his father saw him coming. And filled with love and compassion, his father ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. And his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Give a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and kill the calf. We have been fattened. We must celebrate with a feast for the son of mine was dead and he's now returned to life. He was lost, but now is found. And so the party began. 
I picture the son coming to the father and be like, Dad, I'm sorry I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And I picture the dad be like, shh, don't you say it. Don't you say that. You're not only worthy to be my son, I'm gonna put the best stuff I got on you. We're gonna clothe you with the best robes and the rings and we're gonna kill the fattened calf. And you didn't understand what your identity was at the son, but now you're gonna understand and we're gonna literally celebrate because you were lost. You didn't have the right identity, but now you've been found. And now you are a child of the king and the son of the house. And I just picture the dad shutting him up when he wants to say, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. And when he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. And he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told. And your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him. But he replied, all these years I've slaved away for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me. And in all the time, you never gave me even one goat for a feast with my family, with my friends. Yet, when your son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. We have another son who doesn't understand his identity, don't we? We have another son that doesn't understand what it means to be a son in his father's house. We have a son who's been trying really hard. He does everything his dad says because he's trying to earn his dad's approval because he thinks if I just, my identity is actually in my dad, isn't it? And his father says to him, look, dear son, you've always stayed by me and everything I have is yours. Somebody say everything I have is yours. Louder, everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this day for your brother was dead and came back to life. He was lost, but now he's found. We have a son who never understood that everything his dad had was his. We have a son who even got his inheritance early and still didn't understand that everything his father had was his. We have two sons lost in their identity of what it means to be a son of the house. And if you're like me, you can probably relate to one, if not both, of those sons. What gets in the way of you believing God is your daddy? What gets in the way of understanding God is your father? Jamie talked about this, if you were here a couple weeks ago, that we literally need, when it comes to identity, a rewiring of our brain. Romans 12 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You literally need to be thinking about things differently than the way the world and the way the culture and the way maybe you were raised, maybe your experiences. But the only way you can do that is by literally transforming the way you think. And transforming the way you think about God as a father. Do you know who you are? Man, you guys can come on back up. When you guys came in, you got this card. Um, There's connections team around. If you didn't get one of these cards when you walked in, will you please raise your hand so we can get you one? Raise your hand, the connections team will get you this card. And um, you, we're going to pray through this, but while they're handing it out, I want to say one more thing and, and tell you one quick little antidote. Um, 
when, for those of you that are parents, when your, um, your child was born, right? And they're like two or three days old and you're holding this little thing, right? A little perfect bundle of joy. And then everybody is always trying to figure out what? Who do they, who do they look like? And you're like, I don't know, two days old. (laughs) But everybody tries to figure out who they look like, right? And so um, when we moved here from Alabama and Shanda, my wife Shanda, she, her whole family literally all lives around each other and and, uh, so they have very strong family roots. And when our our first son was born, Miles, um, he had like curly brown, I mean curly blonde hair and uh, and forever, man, everybody's talking about how Miles looks just like her. Her whole family, oh, he looks just like you, boo. She's from out, they call her boo. If you want to, you meet her afterwards, you call her boo if you want. Um, but they, oh, he looks just like you, boo. Everybody, just like you, just like you. And so what was I doing? Oh, man, this stinks. You know what I mean? Because when they, I, I say, I said last service, we have kind of this, unsp- it was a kind of an unspoken competition, right? Like, who, you, you follow me? Am I the only one? No, like when, you're, when they say they look like you, you're like, that's right, babe, did you hear that? You know? And so the whole time, that's kind of what's happened to me. I'm like, oh. And so he was about four years old and uh, maybe five. And when I was four years old, I broke my leg. And uh, Shannon and her mom were looking through some old pictures uh, of this. And I'm in traction and my leg, and a long story, but I, I broke my leg and so I'm in the hospital. And um, her mom is looking at this picture and she like, she goes, what? She goes, he doesn't look like you. She's like, look at that. He looks just like Tony. And so Shanda was like, oh, he's going to love this. You know, because again, we'd had that conversation. And so she shows him a picture. I'm like, I told you guys. I've been telling you he looks like me. That's right. My boy looks like me. Right, dads? Right? That's right. That's my boy. Right? And, uh, and just so you know, I'm not lying. She showed the picture to Miles. And when she said, Miles, look at this picture. And he went, what happened to my leg? He thought it was him. See, kids are supposed to look like their parents, aren't they? And when they do, we get, that's right. And, and of course, we want them to be the good qualities of us, right? When, we, when they love somebody well, when they treat somebody well, when they help when they love, when they love their siblings well, when they honor you, what do you think? Had a boy, had a girl, right? See, you are God's child. And, and I just picture, man, when we're going for it in worship and saying, everything I have, everything you have is mine, Father, and I just want to submit to you. I submit to you. Everything is yours. When you say that, I just picture God sitting there going, that's right. Those are my kids. And they're honoring me. And I picture when you begin to tap into your identity and tap into who it is that God has made you to be, I picture God going, that's right. That's my son. That's my daughter. And it comes out of our understanding of who we are. And who our identity is and where we find it. All right, we're going to spend some time praying through this card and I'm just going to ask you some questions. So whatever you got to do, kind of get into a um, either posture of prayer, whatever, whatever that looks for, like for you. Um, and and uh, Dave did this last week, and 
And we're just gonna kind of continue on with this of, of really asking him some questions about what God is saying. I firmly believe, this is my conviction, that what we're talking about right now, what you guys are going through as a church, understanding your identity, understanding who God is and who you are in him, I firmly believe this is the absolute most important thing that the body of Christ needs. If you're a Christian, this is 100% for you. If you're, if you're not a Christian, not yet, you're seeking, you're, you're kind of checking this out, here's the cool part. You couldn't have heard a better, you can't be a part of a better ser- sermon series because this is what you're signing up for. So we're gonna pray through this and ask some questions and, and give you guys some time for God to respond. The first one. What gets in the way of you believing God is your daddy and that you are his son or his daughter? What gets in the way of you believing God is your daddy and that you are his son and his daughter? Now, tell God the truth about how you think and feel towards him as a dad. Tell him the truth. He can handle it. But tell him the truth about how you feel towards him as a dad. And that might be, I don't feel like I'm your son or daughter. That's okay. Tell him the truth. Now in light of that, what is God showing you right now? Maybe it's in response to a song. Maybe it's in response to a scripture or something said, but what is God showing you right now? And if God is showing something to you, if if he's stirring something, if he's speaking something, if he's, then what are you going to do about it? is, then we have to do something with it. So, as we continue on in this conversation, we're going to take communion as a church. So you have some tables up here, as well as tables in the back. Um, and so, as, as the band begins to sing uh, over us this song, you come, take the bread and the juice. The bread, this represents the body of Jesus. And, and when he was with his disciples, he said, take and eat of this. Every time you come together, as often as you gather, take and eat of this. Because it's my body that's broken for you. And then he says, with the cup, he says, this is the wine, we have juice. And he says that this is the cup of the new covenant that's in my blood. It's shed for you, covers your sins. I remember them no more. And you are now given the right to be sons and daughters of God. So what we're doing is literally celebrating the fact that he's given us this right. And I want to add one thing. If your concept of God is I, and Jesus is I needed someone to pay for my sins so that I could get to heaven that is absolutely 100% a part of what God has for you. And this represents that. But the second thing this represents is 
power and the authority that he's given his sons and daughters. Because again, everything he has is yours. And when you take this, everything God has is yours. So when they start singing, you guys can come forward and take. Hang on to it, and then we'll take together here at the end. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this moment and this time. We ask God that you would do uh, what you would do in our hearts and in our lives. Help us to see you as a father and as a daddy and help us to understand that everything you have is ours. In Jesus' name, amen.